Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. All right, so uh, we're going to look at the doctrine of Christ. We're in Christology, and we're going to look at Christological heresies. So uh, I'm going to start with a text of Scripture, just to let you know where we get our framework from, our, our starting point. I'm going to read some quotes uh, from some theologians about the doctrine of Christ, and then we're going to walk through the heresy list that's in front of you. There's an intentional reason I'm trying to give you many of them. It's not all of them. There's a reason for it, and uh, there's also uh, a very contemporary uh, set of connections with the heresies that we've seen throughout church history. So let me begin with this. In First Peter, excuse me, Second Peter chapter 2, if you've got your copy of Scripture, I'm going to read just a handful of verses that lets us know that uh, what we're going to talk about as far as these heresies are things that uh, the apostles anticipated and warned their readers to make sure that they were framed by biblical truth and framed by what the apostles and what the early church had taught. Notice this, what Peter says in 2 Peter 2, verse 1, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. So Peter said, hey, here's what's going to happen. In the life of the church, there were false prophets in the Old Testament, and what Peter said is that there are false teachers in the New Testament, and what's their false teaching? They'll deny the master who bought them. Verse 2, Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. So how that uh, heresy will be kind of practiced or applied in the church will be through sensuality and wickedness. Verse 3, And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. It sounds a little bit like the prosperity gospel of today. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. That's just one example. There are other examples we could look to in Scripture about where uh, heresies have arisen in the life of the church. And primarily, not although not only, but primarily the heresies that the church has had to deal with over and over again have dealt with the doctrine of Christ. The reason for that is because if you remove the deity from Jesus or remove his humanity or you misunderstand that, you undercut the entirety of the gospel. And so where is Satan attacked? He's attacked in those places where it's most damaging to the good news of Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks ago, this is actually week number two of our lecture, we introduced the doctrine of Christ. Let me read a couple of quotes that I think will help, uh, help frame what we're trying to deal with with uh, Christology. John Calvin put it this way, talking about the doctrine of Christ alone. He said, For Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on myths with the view of obscuring Christ, because he knows that by this means the way is open for every kind of falsehood. That's 500 years ago. As Calvin was saying, that the primary way that Satan is going to try to disrupt the church is to bring in some kind of disrepute or ill repute or false teaching about Jesus. 
Herman Bavinck puts it this way about the doctrine of Christ. He said, the doctrine of Christ is not the starting point of Christian theology, but it is certainly the central point of the whole system of dogmatics. All other dogmas either prepare for it or are inferred from it. As the heart of dogmatics pulses the whole of religious ethical life of Christianity. In other words, Christology is the central doctrine of Scripture. It's not where we started. We started with the doctrine of revelation, what God has said, how God has spoken. We moved to the doctrine of God, doctrine of humanity. And we're going to talk about plenty of other doctrines over the course of these next several years on Wednesday nights. But the doctrine of Christ is the central doctrine. In fact, one of the reasons... While we're going through the book of Hebrews, is the book of Hebrews is a doctrine, is a book about the fact that no one is greater than Christ. And so we're going to spend a lot of time in Hebrews talking about who Jesus is. J.I. Packer puts it this way. He said that Christology is the true hub around which the wheel of theology revolves and to which its separate spokes must each be correctly anchored if the wheel is not to get bent. A very interesting analogy that Packer uses. The point being, the whole idea of the doctrine of revelation that we have to base our theological understanding on what Scripture teaches. If we hold the infallibility and the inerrancy and the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture, then when we're talking about the doctrine of Christ, as difficult as it may be for us to look at Scripture and think, okay, there is a God-man, he came in human flesh, was born of a virgin, Uh, died on a cross, was perfect, rose from the dead. I mean, those are some of the, the, the fascinating claims that Scripture makes about Jesus, the claims that are integral to our salvation, and the claims that almost every heretic at some point has picked and chosen and, and worked against. Well, if we believe in the doctrine of the inerrancy and the infallibility of Scripture then we're not allowed to take our doctrinal ideas and lay them across Scripture and try to make Scripture make sense in light of what we think. We're responsible to say, what does the Bible say? What does Scripture teach us? And then we draw out from what Scripture teaches the doctrines that frame our Christian faith. And that's our approach, is to try to let Scripture guide what we believe, not the other way around. Michael Reeves puts it this way, the last quote I'll read. He said that um, the center and the cornerstone and the jewel in the crown of Christianity is not an idea, it's not a system, it's not a thing, it's not even the gospel as such, it is Jesus Christ. He's the reason we're here. That's why I mentioned a couple weeks back when we gave the first, first lecture that really Christology is the thing that we need to talk about, we need to discuss, and we do, kind of, every Advent we talk about the humanity and the deity of Jesus, we talk about his crucifixion and resurrection regularly. He is the preeminent topic in all of our worship services, the focus of our worship services, but in that sense he's also the most important, the one that we need to make sure we get right. We get that one right, then we can at least communicate the doctrine of salvation over and over again. So why has the church had so many uh, dealings with uh, or misunderstandings, heresies, false views, and what are they? So let's walk through some of these Christological heresies. We're essentially beginning at the early church. Uh, and I'll let you know kind of when we shift to more contemporary views. Docetism is the first heresy. And uh, that heresy basically says that Jesus only appeared to be a man. So it was God, but he wasn't really... 
uh, fully human. He only appeared to be human. And, and what the docetists were trying to get at is that, hold on a second, can, can God really take on human flesh? Can God actually be God in human flesh? And can God die on a cross in the person of the, the second person of the Trinity on a cross? And of course, that's a, that's, I mean, that is a major uh, element of Christian doctrine. And it's hard to believe. Can God take on human flesh? And so the docetists believed that Jesus only appeared to be human. Their ideology, their theology rather, shaped some of the early Gnosticism. They kind of held that, that, that there are, there's a secret knowledge, there's a secret way to God, and, and you had to be just, you know, kind of hold your mouth right and believe just the right things and find just the right group of people in order to really be in the loop in terms of who you are as a follower of God. And that's just a flat-out lie in terms of biblical Christianity. It's available to any who would believe, and it is available through the clear teaching of Scripture. But the docetists and their idea that Jesus only appeared to be man is a part of that particular heresy. A second heresy is Ebionism. Ebionism denied... Deny the Incarnation. So God did not come in human flesh. We talk about the Incarnation every Christmas. We're going to mention it this Christmas as well. The Incarnation is when God took on human flesh. Ebionists denied that, didn't believe that God took on human flesh, didn't believe He came in human flesh. And so He was only a man through whom God worked mightily. In other words... Jesus is nothing more than a great man, a great prophet, a great speaker, a great leader, a great priest, whatever you want to call him, but he is not God in human flesh. Irenaeus, one of the great church fathers, wondered in response to Ebionism. Here's his wondering. He said, how can they be saved unless it is God who worked out their salvation upon earth? The reason the incarnation has to be, folks, is because if Jesus is not God then his death is not sufficient for our salvation. Doesn't matter if he's a good man. Doesn't matter if he's a perfect man. Doesn't matter if he's a great man. If he is a man and a man only, then we're in trouble. Because a man's death is not sufficient to cover your sins and my sins. Only the death of God or God substituting himself on our behalf is sufficient for the salvation of mankind, meaning there's no good news if Jesus is only a man. That's Ebionism. I'll give you a third heresy. This is the, the, one of the, the most well-known heresies in the early church. It's Arianism. Arianism said that Jesus cannot be God. That's Arius. Arius was a pretty fascinating preacher, uh, very charismatic. He is one that, that came through and, and believed that uh, Jesus took the language of begotten son or took the language of sonship uh, to its, its natural human extent. When we read, let me make this clear, when we read Jesus is begotten of God or the firstborn of God or that he is the son of God, those are, are titles to be used to help us understand the nature in which Jesus came to be our Savior. They do not reference the fact that, there was, that, that Jesus had a beginning. In other words, the firstborn carries with it more the idea of Jesus being heir to what God has promised him, not that he is born in the sense that he had a, he, he had a beginning. Jesus is God. He has always been God. 
there was never a time when Jesus was not, or the second person of the Trinity was not. And so Arius claimed that Jesus could not have been God, that he was just a, a great man. Um, he is a created being. Now, this particular heresy was the first one that was specifically dealt with by the church. For the first 300 years of church history, the church was persecuted, faced various uh, challenges throughout the Roman Empire until AD 312 when Emperor Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, which basically gave the church its freedom. Uh, Constantine, many, church, many historians, church historians and historians alike question the, the genuineness of the conversion of Constantine. Now, I'm not here to, to, to argue whether he's in heaven or whether he's not in heaven, but he certainly came to some kind of conversion experience in terms of Christianity. And so he freed the church. The church had been persecuted. Many Christians had had their businesses and homes taken away under previous persecutions. Constantine restored all of that. And as he did that and gave the church its freedom, uh, Arianism was taking roots. This was the mid-early uh, 300s A.D., and Arius was preaching that Jesus was only a man. A great man, but only a man nevertheless. And so Constantine had seen this division in the church. It was running rampant through the church, the early church. And he called the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. And at that council, the bishops came together and they debated... Uh, the deity of Jesus. They discussed the deity of Jesus, what does Scripture teach, they discussed Arianism. And I've mentioned before, this is my favorite Santa Claus myth, that uh, Bishop Nicholas uh, was, uh, was one of the bishops there. He's the bishop that, that kind of uh, uh, was the, the very early beginnings of the Santa Claus story. Bishop Nicholas was a believer in Jesus, in the full deity of Jesus. He would have been orthodox as far as we're orthodox. And the myth goes that while Arius was preaching his heretical views there on the, the council floor uh, at the Council of Nicaea, Nicholas walked out of the, uh, the audience there, walked down on the floor, and knocked um, Arius out, punched him. So, you know, the Santa Claus that I like, the Santa Claus story is the one that's, that's fighting, for, fighting literally for the deity of Jesus. Nevertheless, the church affirmed in that testimony or at that place, that Jesus is fully God. That's Arianism. Another um, heresy is Apollinarianism. This is where the Word became united with only a human body. And this, uh, this particular view has a restricted view of the human nature of Christ. Essentially, uh, He's God, but he, uh, he's not completely and totally human. That's part of the issue there. Most importantly, this uh, God-man failed to accomplish the salvation of humanity. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the church fathers, put it this way. He says, if anyone has put his trust in Christ as a man without a human mind, he has really lost his mind and is completely unworthy of salvation. For that which Christ has assumed, he has not healed but that which he is united to his deity is also saved. Bottom line is those who were a part of this heresy didn't believe that Jesus had a fully human mind, that he was only God and didn't have a human nature. And so uh, the, the church fathers recognized that that would not lead us to salvation either. Another uh, heresy, the next one, is Nestorianism. This is a weird one. Jesus is made up of two distinct 
natures, persons rather, I'm sorry, two distinct persons. We could call this the schizophrenic heresy. And Jesus is, is, not, is not merely God in human flesh, but he is a God person and he is a human person. And he is bound up in this kind of uh, odd relationship. Two indistinct or two distinct in human persons. Next heresy is Eutychianism. Uh, this is a, another odd one. Jesus possessed only one nature, but the human and divine existed before the incarnation, but not after. In other words, the two natures uh, of Christ basically became one nature after the incarnation. It's essentially the the way that the church the way the church history will affirm the deity of Jesus is that you have fully God and fully man. So you have one God, one person. Jesus is one person, but yet he has two natures. He has a God nature, fully God, and he has a human nature, fully man. And certainly that's hard for us to grasp, right? But that's what the Bible affirms, that he's fully God and that he's fully man. Eutychianism basically says that that was the way before the incarnation, but after the incarnation, he's one nature, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense and also is not biblical at all. The fourth council in Chalcedon, and you'll notice this, the answer to that, is that Christ has two natures, one person. That's what the council affirmed there. Now, all of those heresies are heresies that are essentially pre-500 A.D., uh, so the first 500 years or so of church history were dealing with heresies along these lines. You say, Pastor, you know, you've given me a lot of names. I'm not going to remember any of these. Uh, I'm not sure that we need to know these. What's the deal with that? That's sometimes what my students would say in Bible college as well. Here's the reality. There's not a new heresy. The challenges to the Christian faith regarding the doctrine of Christ that we see in contemporary uh, experience are not anything different. They may get at them a little differently, but they're not anything different than the heresies that took place 1,700 years ago, 1,500 years ago, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that. Friedrich Schleiermacher, this is a heresy from about the 1700, 1800s. Schleiermacher, he believed this about Jesus. He believed Jesus was a human with God consciousness. That was his concept. Jesus was a great man. And he is really the beginner of, uh, of theological liberalism uh, that would deny the authority of Scripture. Part of the reason several of these next examples get at their heresy regarding the doctrine of Christ the way they do is they ignore the authority of Scripture. And so what you had in the early church, many of the heresies that abounded in the early church were because people didn't have access either to the full corpus of the New Testament or um, the church itself, like churches in, in particular locations, may not have been entirely literate or churches may not have had all 27 books of the New Testament. So when the church, the church at large, heard this heresy and they came together and explored the scriptures the New Testament in particular, and compare the teaching of Arius or Apollinaris or Nestorius, any of those heresies to what the Scripture taught, 
What did the church affirm? The church affirmed what Scripture taught. Because the church held to the authority and the inspiration and the, the inerrancy of Scripture. What took place after that, or what's taken place in the last four or five hundred years, is there's been a rejection of the authority of Scripture. And when you go to Scripture with the idea that Scripture is mistaken, or Scripture is, is something for kind of a gullible people to believe, and that it's not authoritative, it's not truthful, then then you, what do you have to do? You have to reshape Scripture, if you're going to keep any of it, to make sense of your religious expression. And that's what Schleiermacher did. He went to the Scripture not believing that it's authoritatively God's Word. And what did he come away believing? He came away believing that Jesus is nothing more than a great human with some kind of unique God consciousness. That's Friedrich Schleiermacher. Several others in that same vein. Martin Collar is another one. He is the one who began the, the concept of a dichotomy between the historical Jesus of Nazareth and the Christ of Scripture. That's a, a, an interesting set of phrases, uh, but it's something that has abounded in the last uh, probably two or three hundred years of church history. What does that mean? It means that there are many who believe that the Christ who actually lived is different than the Jesus we believe in from the Bible. In other words, they make a significant distinction between Jesus as a theological figure and Jesus as a historical figure. They would make the case that, say, the gospel accounts or Paul or others, uh, they were trying to give us a Jesus we could believe in. In other words, someone we could deify or someone that could help us through greater aspects in life. And the reason they, they, they hold that kind of approach is when these theological liberals go to Scripture, they go to Scripture and read stories like Jesus healed the woman. You remember the woman who touched his robe and, and she was healed just by power coming out? Or he went in and healed Jairus' daughter? Or he, he, uh, you know, he stilled the, the, the storms on the sea? All of those miraculous stories, what theological liberals go to the text and read, they go to the text and say, that can't be. Because miracles don't happen. We know miracles don't happen. They're, they're supernatural events. And so there's got to be a difference between the Jesus that these apostles are trying to tell us to believe in and the one who actually walked. They don't deny Jesus' existence. They just deny that he's God. And so that's why they create some kind of dichotomy between a theological version of Jesus that the church has raised up and believed in and the historical Jesus, who they believe is behind the theological Jesus, who didn't do these miracles, who may have died on a cross, but certainly wasn't risen from the dead. The reason they try to do that, oddly enough, theological liberalism was trying to save Christianity from Christianity. In other words, they wanted to keep some elements of Christianity, the good things, the things about loving your neighbor and caring for people who are less fortunate and, and all the things that Christianity does that, that nobody really complains about in our world. But they wanted to keep that part of Christianity without keeping the embarrassing parts, the, to them, embarrassing parts, the parts where Jesus is a miracle worker, the parts where Jesus claims to be God, the parts where Jesus... Uh, claims to be, uh, you know, to have risen from the dead after his resurrection. They wanted to ignore those elements of Scripture. And that's what Collar is talking about, creating a distinction between the historical Jesus and the Christ of Scripture. Part of the reason we spend so much time in March and April um, framing our understanding of Christian theology on the doctrine of Revelation is because 
if we take Scripture at face value, that it is God's inspired word, it's inerrant and infallible, there is no distinction between the Christ of Scripture and the Jesus of faith, or the Jesus of Scripture and the Christ of faith. There's no distinction. He, he is both a, an historical figure. He walked and he talked and he did miracles and he died on a cross and rose from the dead. And he is also a theological figure, meaning that there's not a distinction between history and theology, which is tremendously important for us, by the way, because if Jesus is not both historically real, walked and taught, did, did miracles, died on the cross, rose from the dead, it doesn't matter what we believe theologically. Folks, if he didn't physically hang on a Roman cross, suspended between heaven and earth with your sins and my sins on his shoulders, we shouldn't be here tonight. There's no reason for us to have Christianity if Jesus didn't hang with our sins on the cross. Okay? And there's no hope for eternal life if that Jesus who hung on the cross didn't come out of the grave three days later. That had to be more than just a theological event that somebody cooked up in their imagination to get people to follow you know, this, this figure who, who people claimed rose from the dead. Now, one of the reasons I absolutely believe Jesus is both historically the person that the Scripture tells us about and theologically is because we are here today. Folks, I'm not the same person I was after I came to faith in Jesus. And you're not either. And we're not perfect, but we're not the same people. Something changed, meaning someone changed us. And the only way there's someone to change us is if he is someone who actually lived, actually walked, actually died, actually did miracles, and then ultimately actually rose from the dead. Otherwise, our faith is worthless and absolutely unimportant. Another uh, heresy, more modern heresy, is Albert Schweitzer. He believed that Jesus was fueled by eschatological expectations and he died unsuccessfully. That's Schweitzer's view. In other words, Jesus was a revolutionary. He got that part right, uh, but he believed the way Schweitzer took it is that Jesus was instituting the kingdom of God on earth. He believed he was going to do that physically and in reality when he walked on earth the first time. Um, but that when he died on the cross, of course he doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Schweitzer doesn't. When he died on the cross, his ministry ended and his revolution died. Um, well, if Jesus did die on the cross and stay in the grave, then his ministry did end and his revolution died. But Jesus didn't stay in the grave. The reason his kingdom is at work in the world today through churches like ours and people who believe in the gospel and the gospel spreading and people are coming to faith in God is because Jesus' ministry didn't end when he was in the grave because he came out of the grave and he resurrected. Schweitzer doesn't believe in the resurrection, so he completely misunderstands the nature of the gospel. Let me give you another uh, character, Rudolf Bultmann. He held that there's a dichotomy between the historical Jesus of Nazareth, we've heard that term before, and the character charismatic, K-E-R-Y-G-M-A-T-I-C, charismatic Christ of faith. Kerygma is the message preached. So it is the Greek word for preaching. Kerygma or the gospel preached. And so basically he's holding a very similar kind of a piece of ideology to Schleiermacher and others. He just uses his own phraseology. Basically he held that there's a difference between the Christ that was preached as the one who rose from the dead, and the one who actually 
existed. Another character uh, from the early 1900s would be late 1800s, early 1900s, is a uh, social gospel proponent named Walter Rauschenbusch. Rauschenbusch held that uh, Jesus basically instituted a social gospel and that he was a revolutionary leader of a social movement. So for Rauschenbusch, Rauschenbusch pastored a church or ministered in New York City around the turn of the 20th century. He taught at um, it's Rochester Seminary. I believe it's Rochester. I could be wrong on the seminary. He went and studied under all of these German uh, theologians. What you'll notice, by the way, Schleiermacher, Koller, Schweitzer, Bultmann, you go to Karl Barth as well. Karl Barth's a little later. But they're all German because the, the height of theological liberalism, the rise of theological liberalism, came from Germany in the late 1800s uh, and into the early 1900s. And Rauschenbusch went over there to Germany and studied under these fellows, came back, and his ideology was that Jesus was a great social leader, that the gospel basically was do good to all people, um, which is what we're supposed to do, right? We're supposed to do good to all people. But Rauschenbusch didn't hold to a, a very clear doctrine of original sin. He didn't believe that Jesus needed to die on the cross for our sins to be forgiven. And basically, Rauschenbusch's social gospel has formed the framework for the theological social justice movement in our country today. Uh, it, it is important, folks, that we as Christians support calls for justice and righteousness and rightness. The Old Testament prophets do that. The Bible is clear about that. Jesus wants us to treat people better than, than they deserve. I mean, that's the scriptural teaching of Jesus' love. But when you, when you basically limit the Christian gospel to us doing good to other people, then it's not sufficient. I mean, we can be as nice as we want to be to other people. We can support... Uh, justice all we want, but that's not going to bring a person from death to life. It's not going to change their soul. And Rauschenbusch's gospel falls staggeringly short because it doesn't include the need for Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection and eternal life. Uh, another particularly heinous uh, heretic is John Hick. What's sad about John Hick is he started out uh, a defender of Christian... Um, uh, Christian theology, Christian orthodoxy. And then he came across some of these liberal theologians and shifted completely. He wrote a book entitled The Myth of God Incarnate, that Jesus never came in human flesh. His view is that the historical Jesus of Nazareth, his view that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was also God, this is his quote, that's why it's in quotation marks, that the historical Jesus of Nazareth was also God is as devoid of meaning as to say that this circle drawn with a pencil on paper is also a square. Bottom line for John Hick is that he couldn't imagine God being in human flesh and he couldn't imagine human being God. And so because he couldn't imagine it, it can't be. One of the greatest problems with theological liberalism and with heresies is the heresy is only as valid and as capable and as strong as the mind that produces it. Here's what I mean by that. There are some humans in our world that have dreamed up some incredibly fascinating and staggering things 
There are some humans in our world that have discovered some things scientifically or mathematically that, that would hurt our brains if we spent a whole lot of time studying them. And I'm not a chemist. I'm not a physicist. I'm not, I'm not going to go down the rabbit trails uh, that, that Einstein and others went down. I mean, they're pretty fascinating things, okay? But if we're going to say that all theological truth revolves around the particular claim of a particular heretic or a particular thinker in Christian history. In other words, if we're going to think that, oh my goodness, Martin Collar finally figured out all that needs to be figured out about biblical Christianity. Or if we're going to say that, that for example, John Hick, because he can't imagine that Jesus is a human who is also God, that he's God incarnate, because he can't imagine that it can't be, then here's what we're doing. We're limiting the entirety of what God could teach us to the, to the wrappings of one human mind. And folks, if, if God can be limited to what I can grasp intellectually, then that's not a God that we want to be worshipped. I mean, I, I want to be honest with you. If we hold to the orthodox view, the orthodox view rather, that Jesus is God incarnate, that is staggering intellectually. That challenges us. How can God be one and yet he's three? I don't know. But I know the Bible says he is. So I'm going to trust that, that God knows how that works better than I know how that works. And, and if I'm going to say, okay, well, I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to walk away from it because I can't understand it or I can't wrap my head around it. You're welcome to do that. And others are welcome to do that. But there are a lot of warnings that come along with that. We're going to read a bunch of those in the book of Hebrews. Basically say, if you're going to walk away from the God who offered you salvation and ignore the opportunity of salvation that he gives you, just because you can't wrap your head around one particular theological uh, claim, then you're falling away from faith. If you fall away from faith, then I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen to your soul. That's the, the warning in the book of Hebrews. We'll come back to John Hick. Uh, well, it's going to be a little while when we talk about the doctrine of salvation. He is a particular proponent of uh, religious pluralism, the idea that there are multiple pathways to God. Again, when you give up the uniqueness of biblical Christianity, you have to discover other means of salvation. And John Hick believed that there are many, many, many other ways to God besides through Jesus Christ. But we'll get to that at, at its own due course the last uh, theologically liberal or uh, her heresy that I want to acknowledge, at least here tonight, is this from the Jesus Seminar. Jesus Seminar is pretty fascinating. All these theological liberals came along and they wanted to make sense of who Jesus was, the difference between the Jesus of faith and the Christ of history and all that kind of stuff. And, and so here's what they did. They gathered in a room all these brilliant, so-called brilliant theologians, uh, students of Scripture, and they basically said... We're going to look at the Gospels because the Gospels are the primary place we learn about Jesus. And uh, if, if we can figure out in the Gospels what's really real, then we can figure out the heart of Christianity. Okay, that's what they were trying to do. And so they developed a system where they, they took a, a highlighter or a set of beads, really, and they said, if we take this narrative, this statement, whether it's uh, one of Jesus' um, one of Jesus' parables, or whether it's one of his miracles, or whether it's a claim that he made, and we give it a certain color, then we believe that this, is, this, this particular statement goes all the way back 
to, to kind of historical accuracy. In other words, this is an original statement. This, this is something that Matthew intended and that, that actually took place. But if we give it a different color, we're not sure about it. And if we give it a certain color, then we definitely don't think it goes all the way back in history that it was an addition by the, by the gospel writer in order to make us believe in Jesus. So here's what the Jesus Seminar finally came up with. 82% of the words ascribed to Jesus in the Gospels were not actually spoken by him according to the Jesus Seminar. Now, I realize it's a lot more nuanced than that how they came up with the fact that 82% of the words in the New Testament were not, or the Gospel accounts were not spoken by Jesus. Here's, here's what I want to wonder. Here's what I'm trying to figure out. What did they use to determine that 82% of the words spoken by Jesus weren't spoken by Jesus? Is there some kind of rubric that we don't know about that, that, that identifies the, the te- that what Jesus actually said from what Jesus didn't say? It's not present. Basically what they're doing is they're going to Scripture. Now watch this. They're going to Scripture with their minds already made up on what can be or can't be there. If you go to scripture with your mind already made up that you know Jesus can't be God and he can't do miracles, then guess what you're going to do? Every time he claims to be deity, you're going to take that out and say, that can't be there because your mind's already made up. In other words, what theological liberals do and what all too many Christians do, I might add, on a different set of levels, is they go to the Bible with their own theological lens with what they want it to say and then they only read out of the Bible what fits their presuppositions that they took with them to the Bible. Our challenge as Christians and our obligation as Christians is to go to the Bible and let the Bible read us and read our theological understandings, our theological positions, and challenge us as opposed to us make the Bible fit what we'd like it to fit. Let me give you a a last thing before we do the takeaways. So you say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Why, 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 do we, why do we need to be sold on the doctrine of Christology? Why do we need to have uh, orthodox Christian theological positions? Haven't we moved past all this? Let me read a headline that I, I came across November 27th. Cambridge Dean says Jesus could have been transgender after truly shocking sermon proclaims that Christ had a decidedly vaginal appearance. That's the headline of an article I read just last week. It is a Cambridge dean, the same school that C.S. Lewis taught at when he was writing Mere Christianity, when he was writing the Chronicles of Narnia. That school now has a dean who uses art, medieval art, that's a good way to find truth, a medieval artist that, that depicts for us exactly who Jesus was. I mean, in the art, in the picture that he's using, Jesus is white. Jesus isn't white. Jesus was a Jewish man. He, he would look more like a, someone from, from Iraq or Iran today than he would look like you and me. The reason he was white in medieval pictures is because it was Europeans that painted the pictures. Okay, To think that we get truth from medieval art that allows us to think Jesus is transgender, that just tells you how far we have gone astray from a framework that gives us truth. Where do we get truth from? 
I mean, if you start reading these headlines about Jesus that we see in contemporary culture, I'm just telling you, take them and compare them to what this says. Because the book is what guides and guards our Christian orthodoxy. Let me give you two takeaways, and we'll be finished. Christology is the preeminent doctrine because Christ is the preeminent figure of the Bible. Christology is the preeminent doctrine because Christ is the preeminent figure of the Bible. If we misunderstand the doctrine of Christ, we misunderstand salvation. If he wasn't perfect, he couldn't die for our sins. If he wasn't man, he couldn't be our substitute. If he wasn't God, he's not sufficient in his death to pay for all of our sins. If he wasn't incarnate, meaning that he was born of a virgin, then he's just a normal man. Everything that the Bible teaches us about Jesus, even as staggering as it is for us to say, that's a miracle that's hard for me to grasp. Yes, it is. But it is absolutely necessary if we're going to have salvation. And if we believe in the authority of Scripture and God gave it to us, then we, we shouldn't have too many trouble, too much trouble with holding on to that particular doctrine. That's why we keep coming back to it week after week, Sunday after Sunday, sermon after sermon. Uh, it, there's nothing more important. Let me give you the second takeaway. Christology is vital because knowing Christ truthfully, that is, knowing Christ doctrinally, so in parentheses is doctrinally, knowing Christ truthfully or doctrinally makes it possible to know Christ personally or relationally. What do I mean by that? Well, bottom line, you do not have to be a theologian to come to faith in Jesus. Amen? You don't have to read a theology, theology textbook. You do not have to affirm the, the creeds of the early church. Okay? You don't have to. But if the Jesus that you were taught and proclaimed is not God in human flesh who died on a cross for your sins, was virgin born, and rose from the dead, then the Jesus you believe in is insufficient to be your Savior. If He's insufficient to be your Savior, you can't really know Him. Because the only way you can know God is to believe in Jesus Christ and have the Holy Spirit to come live inside you. And the only way that takes place is when you believe in the Jesus that the Scripture articulates. Peter put it this way in Acts 4, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's no other way to God. There's no other way to know God. But here's the glorious thing. If we know the Jesus that the Bible teaches, we can know God. It's important that we know Him doctrinally and know Him in an orthodox fashion, that we reject unorthodox or we reject heretical teachings about Jesus. And I'm going to tell you something like I just started with way back in March. The Jesus that you can trust to save you from your sins is the same Jesus that when you go home tonight and lay your head on your pillow and everything else is quiet, you can talk to Him, He can hear you, and He can talk back. Folks, I want us to know about doctrinal truth. I think it's tremendously important because it protects us from going astray. It helps us as we... Man, we're going to have to navigate some things with our kids and grandkids in terms of doctrine and truth and morality and and all kinds of things that our kids are experiencing. 
I've had conversations with my children and, and others about things that are commonplace conversations that I didn't even know about until I was 18, 19, 20 years old. And they're having these conversations every single day. It's norm. Um, I mean, the last two Disney movies bombed at the box office because of LGBTQ themes in cartoons targeted at 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old kids. We need to be framed doctrinally so we can figure out how in the world do we help our children base their lives on truth. We also need to help our kids and ourselves included know God. You can talk to him. He cares about you. He'll listen to you. Folks, when we prayed earlier, he was listening, just like he was listening to the millions and millions and millions of prayers prayed by other Christians all over the world, probably at the very same time. He's God. He's capable of knowing us and being known by us. Uh, what we're going to try to do over the next couple of weeks, we're going to, uh, next week we'll meet again, right in here, the 14th. We will meet, but we will meet for a Christmas presentation by our kids in Awana, so the 14th, so we've got one more week of the Doctrine of Christ that we're going to do before the semester ends, and then we'll pick back up with theology in January. We will have a, a prayer time meeting uh, probably on the 21st. That's possible. We haven't, we haven't determined all the details of that, but there won't be kids' activities and other things going on. Um, nevertheless, that, that's our schedule. So we'll come back and deal with the Doctrine of Christ. We'll talk about what Scripture says about Him being human, and what Scripture says about Him being divine. And we're going to look at texts that articulate both positions. We're going to walk through several of those passages of Scripture next week, just compare them to one another, and uh, that's what we'll do next week. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found. 